for your love and your grace and your gift. We come to celebrate today the victory that you've won for us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we ask you today by the power of your Holy Spirit and the anointing of your word that you would take things that are just religious concepts to us and that you would deposit them in our heart, that you would touch our heart, the depths of our heart, with the good news of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for us and how much he loves us, demonstrated by how far he was willing to go. Father, your word says that the Holy Spirit's been given to us to search the depths of your heart this morning, right now, and to bring out of the depths of your heart all that God has prepared for those who love him. And you, he, brings, he reveals those things to us through the word of God. And so, Father, I just publicly declare, which I've already declared to you, what you've always known, I am totally inadequate to do anything this morning but I'm trusting you by the Holy Spirit to take the things that you have touched my heart with, that you have shown me in the Word, and that by the power of your Spirit, you're to breathe this Word, this love, this grace, this goodness into each one of our hearts. Open the eyes of our understanding that we would truly see the hope of your calling for our life that has been given to us in Christ Jesus. And so we thank you for that in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I just also want to let you know that because we're so excited that the numbers returning physically to church has grown and increased, we're going to change a little bit how we dismiss at the end. Uh, Up until now, we've been dismissing as I dismiss people by five rows at a time, but it's getting more difficult to do that. So what we're going to do at the end of the service is right away, I will, and there's a little different order to the end of the service. We're going to have a special before we close. I I will dismiss the balcony. And then the ushers will have an usher go down each aisle and they will dismiss you one row at a time. And those of you that are in the overflow room, you will be last. So unlike the Bible where the last shall be first and the first shall be last, they will get to you, get to you last. So that's what we are going to do at the end of the service. Well, I, I, it's interesting. I had a, a doctor's appointment this week to just kind of check me and make sure nothing's grown in my skin that shouldn't have grown there again. And I was talking to the young lady that was doing this, and she told her that I was a pastor. And she said, well, how do you choose, how do you choose what you're going to preach? And she seemed sincerely interested. And I said, well, I, I, I generally go with whatever God's been doing in my heart. I don't want to preach an idea. I don't want to teach concepts or ideas because they're dry and dead. They're dry and dead to me, let alone try to get it across to you. And so I never to do that. And so what I want to share with you this morning is something that God has been opening the eyes of my heart to see, something I've known for years, and most of you have known this for years, but God can reveal them to us at a different level, make them personal to us. Just as I was raised, as I tell you every week, I was raised in church. I was taught that Jesus is the Son of God. I was taught He died and paid for the sins of the world. I was taught that. I taught He died and paid for me. But it wasn't until I was 37 years old that I met the living Christ. And suddenly all those concepts and verses and scriptures became a reality in my heart. And it changed my life forever. So that was the prayer that I've just prayed for God to do that. Well, today we celebrate, as we've already been singing, the resurrection of our Lord. His victory for us over sin, over death, over fear. And a victory that He's won for us 
for eternity. And so we're going to look today at what He did for us. We're celebrating the victory, but the, the, real, the real power of it is when we have a better understanding of what He went through to win that victory for us. Because what He went through is a measure, evidence, of how much He loves us and how far He gave Himself for us. One of my favorite scriptures Paul wrote was, I've been crucified with Christ, therefore it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives lives in me. But the life that I now live in, I live by faith in the Son of God, but it ends with this, who loved me and gave Himself for me. This gospel is personal. Jesus came to the earth for you. He went through what he went through for you. And I believe with all my heart, the Bible teaches us that if I was the only one, or you were the only one that needed him to do that, all the rest of us were pure and holy, he still would have come and gone through all of that just for you. Just for you. So we're going to look at something today that can be a little theological but it's a very powerful truth and we pray today in trusting that the Holy Spirit will bring this to us. We're going to talk about the, Christ is the expression of God's love for us and, and the story begins on Christmas and we talked a little about this last Christmas. Uh, John chapter 1 verse 14, which is a verse I use very often. Christmas is about this, the Word, that's God, the Son, became flesh, a human being, and dwelt, lived among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. This verse tells us that God, to begin His journey to redeem us, became one of us. And it wasn't some theory. He was physically born as a baby. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. He often... And he referred to himself more than anything else as the Son of Man. Very rarely did he call himself the Son of God. He was and is the Son of God, but he identified himself more as being a human being, the Son of Man. And this is where our minds kind of balk, because he was still all God, but God now became a living, breathing human being wearing a human body. This is how far God was willing to come to rescue us. Most of the heresies where the church doctrine got off track is over those two principles. They either deny that he was God in the flesh or they deny that God became a real, living, functioning human being. And if all heresies have their root on those two things, they must be the critical heart of the gospel. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 Paul, in this powerful chapter, tells us the same thing. What the law could not do because it was weak through our flesh, God did for us. What we could not do to overcome sin, what we could not do to make ourselves holy enough in God's eyes, because the law provided a way to do that, but we couldn't do that because it required us to be perfect as God is perfect. The verse that turned my life around was in, the, is, was in the Sermon on the Mount. I was reading through it, very successful lawyer in a large law firm, struggling with all this because I was a good person. I didn't cheat on my wife. I didn't cheat on my taxes. 
I was actually a good, honest lawyer. <laughs> we have another one sitting over here. <laughs> Your laugh. <laughs> but God can do, we sang, God can do anything this morning. <laughs> and so I struggled because I was a good person. Until I ran across a verse where Jesus says, Be ye perfect as my Father is perfect. And I realized, I'm good, but I'm not perfect like He's perfect. And literally the words that came out of my mouth, if that's true, I need somebody to save me. And that's when what Jesus did for me got through to me. Put that verse back up. So the law could not make us perfect because the law was relied on your own efforts to improve yourself and that's great you can do a good job but you can't get with God's level and that's what God requires but God did sending his own son look at these words in the likeness of sinful flesh some people have gone off and said well that means it really wasn't flesh like your flesh and my flesh because it was in the likeness of it no the, the only difference was his flesh did not have the tendency to sin that you and I had but it was still human flesh we'll see that as we go forward sending his own son in the likeness of your flesh on account of sin he condemned sin in the flesh he condemned our sin in his flesh so God sent him to become a man. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. Just to show you some verses here that say this. For it was fitting for him. Hebrews, most of the book of Hebrews is a contrast or a comparison of, of other, other people in the Bible like Moses or Abraham or he's just finished talking about angels and showing how Christ is superior to all of them. And so here he's just finished talking about angels and he says, for it was fitting for him, that's Jesus, for whom, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. So all things were made through him and all things were made for him. It was fitting for him who was those things in bringing many sons to glory, that's us hopefully, to make the captain or the head of their salvation perfect or complete through sufferings. Next verse. For both he who sanctifies, that's Christ, and those who are being sanctified, that's us, are one. For which reason he's not ashamed to call you his brother. That's what that's saying. Go down to verse... Go down to verse uh, 14. Inasmuch then as the children, that's us, have partaken or wear flesh and blood. In other words, inasmuch as we're human beings living in these human bodies, he himself likewise shared in the same. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil. Satan had the power of death over us through our sin. Our sin, we'll talk about this in a few minutes, our sin broke any possible relationship with God, made us rebels. We'll talk about that again in a few minutes. 
And because of that, it gave Satan license to control our lives and our future. We gave it to him without realizing it. So therefore, he has the power of death. He has the power of destruction. He has the power over your soul to destroy you for eternity through our sin. And Christ came to win that back from him by paying the debt that we owed and by destroying the power that Satan had over our lives through our rebellion against God. But to do that, Christ became one of us so he could do it for us. He didn't just sit in heaven and say, I'm going to wave a magic wand so that now your sins are forgiven you. Because I think that's what many Christians believe he did. Well, Christ came to pay for our sins so that we can go to heaven, and that's basically the gospel. There is so much more depth to the reality of what Christ did for you and me to redeem us and what he had to do and how complete that redemption is because he held nothing back. He took no shortcut. Verse 15. To release those, look at this, who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This is what he came to deliver us from. Verse 16. For indeed, he does not give aid to the angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Just trust me, that's us. Verse 17. Therefore, listen to this, therefore, to do this, in all things he had to be made like us, like his brethren, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. A a priest in the Bible is a go-between, makes up the gap, the difference between where the people are and where God is, and bridges that gap. And the high priest was the greatest of all. So that's why the New Testament calls Christ our high priest, because he bridges the gap between us and a holy God. But the one that bridges the gap has been a human being like you. The one who bridges the gap understands what it's like. I'm getting ahead of myself. Deal with temptation just like you. But the one who bridges the gap had victory over that. Unlike us, but that victory he has given to us so that we may be joined to a holy, righteous God. Verse 18. For in that he himself has suffered, suffered being tempted, we're going to look at some of that, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. The theological term for what he did is called identification. He became identified with us. So I want to take a minute or so to break down what that means. One of the definitions I found for identification is to conceive of you as united with or the same as another. I mean, we're familiar with this. Your driver's license serves as your identification when you travel. 
So as we have traveled, and we have some since this COVID, you get to the TSA officer, and you pull out your, your, however they in your phone or whatever it is, you put your boarding pass in, or give them your boarding pass, and then you hand them your identification. And he tells you to take your mask down, and he measures what your face looks like with a picture on your identification to tell whether you are identical or you are the same person. We have a phenomenon out there now with all the internet and things like that called identity theft. Well, they, don't, they can't take you, but what they can steal from you is your passwords, your social security number, and various other means of identifying who you are. So what does that password do that they steal, they try to steal? That password tells your online banking service, or that password, password tells your credit card account online that the person that's trying to access it really is you. So identification means I, it, is, it's, it is an exact representation of who I am, and it's identified with me. Another example, kind of a living example, would be a missionary who was called by God to go to a foreign people, and in order to reach them, he decided to become like them. So instead of wearing his his clothes that he wore in the United States, he started wearing the clothes that their culture wears. He started adopting their culture practices, learned to speak their language, and learned to begin to relate to them as one of them and became one of them, but he never stopped being an American. And he did this with the idea of reaching them to the point of bringing some things to them, which is primarily the gospel. So let's talk about Jesus. Jesus came, as we just saw, to live among us as the Son of God and to totally identify with us. Remember what identify is. In his birth, now listen to this, he's God. The enormity of what he did, I don't know that we'll ever be able to grasp it. Perhaps when we see him in his glory. But God, in order to redeem your life, started by being born as a human being exactly the way you were. He didn't just appear at 30 years of age on a hill in, in somewhere in distance, Palestine, and then show up in Jerusalem. He became a human. He submitted himself and humbled himself to identify with you in every possible way. Every possible way. Now when I say he was born as a human being the same way you were, there is a difference. The seed that was joined to Mary's, in Mary's womb with her egg did not come from Joseph. It did not come from a man. It was the seed of God that came through the Holy Spirit. So his flesh, his humanness in his flesh was like yours. But he had God's nature on the inside, unlike your nature and mine, until we came to Christ. 
So he, he identifies with us fully in the process of birth. Not just that. He had to be taken care of. We don't have talked about this before. He had to be, he had to be breastfed. He had to have his diapers changed. God! Humbled himself that much so he could identify with you and me what it means to grow up. He had to play as a child with other children and not... <laughs> there are stories, jokes told about what it must have been like to have Jesus playing in your school with you. Uh, he's always right. <laughs> or being one of his brothers. Uh, he's the good do-gooder. Because they didn't know who he was. So he had to deal with that. We've got to go on. The second thing is, he identified with us in what it's like to be tempted. Matthew 4, verse 1. Right after Jesus' public ministry is being launched, he was filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And the first thing is, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Look at this, to be tempted by the devil. The very first thing he did once God had anointed him for ministry was for him to be tempted to identify what it's like to be tempted. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says we do not, this is a double negative, so it means we do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he was tempted in all points just as you and I are. He knows what it's like to struggle with trying to stay awake in church. I'm not looking at anybody. He knows what it's like to get frustrated with people. He got frustrated with his own disciples. How long do I have to put up with you? He was human. He wept at Lazarus' grave, even though he knew he was about to raise him from the dead. So he knows what it's like to struggle with the weakness of human flesh that wants to do other things than it's supposed to. But in all points he was tested as we are, yet without sin, which is why he can still be our high priest connected to God. So he's connected to us because he knows what it's like to struggle with temptation, but he's still connected to God because he never gave in. Where you and I have given in on a regular basis, he was tempted in all ways as you are, probably tempted more because Satan came after him because if he could get him to break, to break that righteousness once, he had him. And never once in 33 and a half years did he ever yield once to temptation? And he did that for you. So that he could be identified with you and yet give you victory over it. So he identified with us in his birth. He's identified with us in dealing with temptation. But the one I really want to talk about this morning is he identified with us in bearing the curse that we were under and its full consequences, which are fear, sickness, death, and ultimately separation from God. And this is where I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to get through to us the, the enormity, the, the depth of His identification with the curse 
that you and I deserve. 2 Corinthians, I think that's next. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus didn't just pay for our sins, again, by waving a wand over them or saying, look, I'm going to suffer and then I'm going to consider that you're forgiven. No, He took sin itself because sin had to be judged. We talked last week about the wrath of God. That wrath of God for a righteous, holy God had to be judged. And so Jesus, at the appointed time, allowed himself to become sin itself. He identified fully with our sin. He didn't just pay for our sin, but he became like one of us in our sin. In his trial, in his scourging, his crucifixion, he experienced the full blunt of the curse that we had earned. I've read somewhere that if you want to know what our, our sin would have done for us, look at the cross. Do you remember the movie a number of years ago, The Passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson did? Oh, it's hard to move you to look at, but you need to look at it at least once. The horrible beating that he took. The horrible beating that he took. Well, let me just read a little bit here. Let's go to Isaiah 53. Famous verse. He was despised and rejected by men. So he not only bore the punishment, part of that punishment is rejection. God's rejection. But he bore it, he was rejected by men. He, he took rejection for us. He was despised for us, a man of sorrows and equated with grief, but we hid ourselves, as it were, his, our faces from him. He was despised and we disteem, did not esteem him. Go to Isaiah 52, 14. Just as many as astonished at you, so his visage, his face, was, was marred more than any man. Part of that was the beating he took, but part of that was the agony of bearing our sin. His face was so contorted on that cross that they could barely recognize he was a man. And his form more than those of the Son of Man. If you remember in that movie, there's an amazing scene where before he goes to the cross, he's being scourged. I don't have time to go through all of what that meant. But the Romans did not intend, it was a, it was a, the Romans did not intend for a man to survive that. But after he has been whipped, and it was little, little bits of glass and bits of stone tied into, into, into strips of leather, and there was the guy that did it was a master at it. He would flick it and would flick skin off until there were literally stripes across his back. And in that movie, there's a scene where you can tell that the guy that's doing this thinks he's done. And Jesus rolls over so he can get the front of him, so that the price... can be fully paid. 
And then when they were done with that, they made him carry the crossbeam, and then they nailed him to a cross. The cross is perhaps one of the most horrible ways ever designed by man to die. It was invented by the Phoenicians, but the Romans mastered it. It often took three to five days on that cross because they would nail or strap your wrists like this at such an angle and your feet, as you've seen the pictures, were nailed to a post. And what would happen is, hanging there, your lungs would begin to fill with water. And so you would, to breathe, you would begin to stand up like this to make room. And the moment you did that, excruciating pain went through your body and you sank back down. So it was a constant process of up and down, pain and not being able to breathe. And this is why to end it, they broke their legs because then they could no longer push up and they would suffocate. In Jesus' case, they found he'd already died because his heart had ruptured through the agony that he went through. Galatians chapter 3. Oh, one of the things, he, our rejection by God. That's why he cried out, My God, my God, why had you forsaken me? Our sin made God forsake us. Would have. And so Christ had to be rejected by God because he was, he was sin in himself. And God had to turn his face away, not just because of the horror of it, but because this man now was full, pure sin. And God had to pull his face away. And so Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become the curse for us, for is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Notice he redeemed us becoming, by becoming the curse. He identified with our curse and took it upon himself. Go to Deuteronomy 21. This will give you the background. This is part of the law establishing the punishment that a holy God had, had uh, uh, decreed. If a man has a... Listen to this. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, who, when they are chastened by him, does not heed them, does not listen to their correction, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city, to the gate of the city, verse 20, and they shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious and he will not obey our voice, he is a glutton and a drunkard, verse 21, then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. Anybody want to go back to the Old Testament? <laughs> so you shall put away... Listen to this. Why? So you shall put away evil from among you. God would not tolerate rebellion. And all of Israel shall hear and they shall fear. Now look at verse 22. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, had we committed a sin deserving of death? He shall be put to death, and then you shall hang him on a tree. You shall hang him on a tree. Keep going. His body shall not remain overnight, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance. For who is hanged on the tree is accursed 
of God. So when somebody was executed for a capital crime, they would take their body and they would hang it from a tree in the midst of everybody so they would see what happens to people that rebel or break God's law. They're cursed. And God was showing them what happens when we're cursed. This is why Galatians 3.13 says, He became our curse. You and I, before we came to Christ, were all rebellious sons of God. Why? We didn't do what He said to do. Oh, maybe sometimes. We considered ourselves our own authority. We were born into this curse. And it was caused by our rebellion against God. We were rebellious, and that rebellion sentenced us to death by a holy, righteous God who could do nothing else. Well, what was this rebellion? The rebellion was self. I have my own rights. In fact, God, I know what God's Word said, but I think. I know what God says, but, but I have my own opinion. We're going to talk some of that next week. I, I, have my own, you know, I know what God's Word says, but I don't know that I want to. That's all rebellion. This is God's authority. God is the ultimate authority. We talked about this last week. Got to move on. Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 3. And he made him alive who was dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in dis- sons, of, sons of disobedience. That was us. Verse 23 among whom you all once so conducted yourself in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of God's wrath, just as the others. I want to read a couple of things that I've been reading that, that can, 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 can say it far better than I can. Our rebellion was the... This is me still. Our rebellion was the assertion of self and our rights against whom God is and His authority. God's righteous judgment for our rebellion was borne by God because He came our curse for us. One of the books that's changed my life, as I've mentioned it before, it's The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And this is from a chapter called The Discipleship and the Cross. And this is, if you want to know this, this is in my notes. You just have to download my notes. This and the other thing I'm going to quote. In Gethsemane, Jesus prays to His Father that the cup of what He's going to have to go through may pass from Him. And His Father hears His prayer. For the cup of suffering will indeed pass from Him, but only by His drinking it. This is the assurance he receives as he kneels for the second time in the Garden of Gethsemane that the suffering indeed will pass as he accepts it for us. This is the only path to victory. The cross is his triumph over suffering. That is why he takes upon himself the suffering of the whole world and in doing so proves victorious of it. He he bears the whole burden of man's separation from God and in the very act of drinking the cup, he causes it to pass over him. 
He sets out to overcome the suffering of the world, so he must drink it to the dregs. Listen to this last statement. Either the world must suffer under this whole burden of the curse and collapse under it, or it must fall on Christ to be overcome in him. He therefore suffers vicariously for the world. Another quote here. This is from a devotion by Andrew Murray called Abide in Christ. And again, this is in my notes. The section in chapter 11, the crucified one. On the cross, the Son of God enters into the fullest union with man. He enters into the fullest experience of what it says to become a son of man, a member of the human race under the curse. It is in death that the Prince of Life conquers the power of death. It is in death alone that He can make me a partaker of that, that, that victory. He identified with our curse, suffering, death, and separation from God so that He might win the victory over us. And we share only, this is me, we share only in His victory He has won for us by our identifying with Him in His victory. The place, Murray says, the place where we join Him must start at the cross. And this is what he continues to say. Christ came and took my place. I must put myself in His place and abide there. There can be but one place which is both His and mine, and that place is the cross. His, in virtue of His free choice, mine by reason of the curse of my sin. He came there to seek me. There alone I can find Him. When He found me there, it was the place of cursing. This He experienced, for cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. He made it a place of blessing. That is, I experienced, for Christ has delivered me from the curse being made a curse for us. When Christ comes in my place, He remains who He was, the beloved of the Father. But it's in the fellowship with me that He shares my curse and dies my death. When I stand in His place, which is still always mine, I'm still what I was by nature, the accursed one who deserves to die. But as united to Him, I bear His blessing and receive His life. When He came to be one with me, He could not avoid the cross, for the curse always points to the cross as its end and fruit. When I seek to be one with Him, I cannot avoid the cross either, for nowhere but on the cross are life and deliverance to be found. As inevitably as my cross points to Him on the cross as the only place where I can be fully united to Him, His blessing points me to the cross too as the only place where I can be united to Him. I took my cross for His own. He took my cross for His own. I must take His cross for my own and be crucified with Him. I'm going to shorten this down a little bit. Jesus said this to His disciples, Come, follow Me. And then later on He said, If you would follow Me, you must take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Me. Without Christ, we can't do that. We can't do that on our own. But too many Christians are out trying to live the benefit of His death, burial, and resurrection without sharing in the death of self that He went through for us. We're going to hear a song right now that kind of brings some of this home and then I'm going to come back up to close this out.
the bridge was far too wide But from the far side of the chasm You held me in your side So you made a way Across the great divide Left behind heaven's throne To build it here inside And there at the cross You paid the debt I owe Broke my chains, freed my soul First time I had hope Thank you Jesus for the blood applied Thank you Jesus that has washed me white Thank you Jesus you have saved my life Brought me from the darkness to glorious light You took my place Laid inside my tomb of sin You were buried for three days But then you walked right out again Now death has no sting And life has no end For I have been transformed By the blood of the Lamb Thank you, Jesus, for the blood of mine Thank you, Jesus, it has washed me wide Thank you, Jesus, you have saved
not been a typical resurrection day jump up and shout run around celebrate Jesus's victory because I believe what God's trying to show us is the height of our jump is determined by the depth of how deeply we've been touched by what he's done for us and how much he loves us And it'd be wonderful to have a Sunday morning Easter service where we're jumping, shouting, and celebrating, but it'd be far more meaningful if the Holy Spirit's able to take the depth of the reality of the cross, of how much we owe Him and what He's done for us, and bore that down deep into our hearts so that every morning we wake up grateful and thankful and ready to serve and do whatever He's called us to do. God wants to dig the foundation of the church deeper into our hearts. It's been wonderful, but God wants to get to the depths of our hearts. And it begins by seeing and letting the Holy Spirit touch what Christ has done for us. The question I have for you today as we end, those of you that are online and all of us here today, this morning, this is, I'm not just speaking now to those that have not received Christ, I'm speaking to all of us to ask this serious question. Who is Jesus to you? Not Sunday morning, not maybe during your devotion. Who is Jesus to you at school? Who is Jesus to you at the workplace? Who is Jesus to you? Is he an historical or religious figure or a name that we worship here on Sunday? Or is he really your savior in your heart? He was willing to become a man, woman like you and bear your curse and bear God's wrath for that curse, for our sins. Are you willing to come to him and receive the gift that he has for you of his righteousness, his holiness. He loved you and held nothing back. He's calling you this morning to come to him and hold nothing back from him. Because all the promises that God has for us of righteousness, all the promises that God has for blessing, all those promises meet him at the cross. See, what the cross requires of us is that we humble ourselves like I had to do that morning and admit, I can't do this. Humble ourselves enough to recognize what we really are like in God's eyes on our own apart from Christ. On our best day, the best person in this room, your best deeds, God says, are filthy rags compared to His holiness. So the cross means I've got to humble myself and face how God sees me.
apart from Christ. And only then can I receive the goodness of His grace and forgiveness. Because until I do that, I'm always trying somehow to measure up and to prove to God what I can only prove is failure. So here's what I want to do. If you're here this morning, the balcony, back under the balcony in the overflow room, if you're watching online, if you've never met this Christ, this living Christ who's no longer in that grave, we sang about that earlier. As I said earlier, I I was in church my whole life. I was a deacon in my church. I believed Jesus was the Son of God, but I never met Him because I never humbled myself enough to realize what I was like in God's eyes. And that night in my living room, my foyer actually, I cried out to Jesus and I said, I don't know if you're real. I don't know if this is going to do anything, but I'm going to take this little step of faith. And if you're real, I'm asking you to come into my life as my Savior. I had no idea what I was doing. And all I can describe to you is about one in the morning, I was still in my three-piece suit, come from the law office, still with all my dignity outwardly intact. But inwardly, I knew I was a mess. I knew I was lacking something that would give my life meaning. I knew that something was missing inside. I didn't know it was someone. And that morning, that early, actually actually almost early in the morning, one o'clock, Jesus came into my heart. I can't describe what it was like. I can only tell you I knew he had, it was alive and had come into my life and he changed me. It's been a gradual process, but my life has never been the same. And now I have a confidence with all the mess that's going on in the world that whenever it is I breathe my last breath, I have a confidence regardless of how good I've been or not good I've been that I'm going to leave this body and be in the presence of the Lord. Do you have that confidence this morning? Do you have that confidence this morning? Or is your confidence in or lack of confidence in in how good you've been, how faithful you've been to God or, or how you've not been faithful? You can't be faithful enough. Here's what I want to do. If that's you, either here or online, I want, to, I want to lead you in a very simple prayer. You don't need to understand it. You just need to mean it as best you can. And then when we're done, I'll give you a little bit of instructions. So I want you to pray this with me. You don't need to kneel. You can just look me right in the face because God's going to hear it. Just mean it as best you can. Say, Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. You know everything I've ever done, everything I've ever said, everything I ever thought. For whatever did not please you, I ask you to forgive me. Wash me in the blood of Jesus. Make me clean in your sight. Jesus, I call upon you to come into my life as my Savior. And I take my life as it is right now and I put it into your hands to be Lord. Fill me with your spirit so that I may live strong for you for the rest of my days. Thank you for loving me this much. Amen. 
That's wonderful. Several things you need to do. You need to tell somebody you've done that. You can do that by calling our office tomorrow morning. There's a number at the bottom of your screen. Call our office tomorrow morning. Someone will answer the phone because we want to send you some free material to give you a better understanding of what you've done today. And we'd love to hear from you. Secondly, join us next week. We'd love to have you come here physically, but if not, you can join us online. And then just to remember, this Wednesday night we have our Bible study. uh, And I just either come online or be here. And I know that you will be blessed. God bless you. Thank you for your heart, your attentiveness. I'm going to ask you to stand now. We're going to close with the worship. Remember now, we have ushers that are going to come down the aisle and dismiss you by rows. Balcony, you're dismissed. God bless you. Thank you for joining us online. We'll see you next week. There is nothing stronger.